all, all the people have gone to the Good News Holiday Club holiday. So brilliant to see so many today. A priest was driving along the road one day when he got stopped by a policeman. The cop smelled alcohol on the priest's breath and saw an empty wine bottle on the floor of the car. He said to the priest, Father, have you been drinking? The priest replied, only water, officer. The cop then asked him, well, why can I smell wine? The priest looked at the bottle and said, good Lord, he's done it again. (laughs) Good one, wasn't it? (laughs) Yay. Well, I was looking for some jokes around vineyards, so that was one I came up with, which I thought was brilliant. So to set the scene... Jesus has already entered Jerusalem and he has seriously worried the religious authorities by cleansing the temple of the money changers and all those people who sold animals for sacrifice. And then he told the parable of the two sons, which Paul shared with us last week, one son who cooperated and one son who didn't. And today's parable is the second of actually three parables, which in one of my commentaries are described as attacking parables because they expose the corruption of Israel's religious leaders. And Matthew 21 is also describing the mounting tension that there is in Jerusalem. Now, we've probably all seen lovely pictures of vineyards like this, perhaps in the south of France, although England itself are producing lots of grapes for wine nowadays. So Jesus is actually describing a really well-ordered vineyard with a thick-set thorn hedge around it to protect the vineyard from wild animals and thieves. It's got a really good wine press to work the grapes when they're ripe and a strong watchtower to watch out for thieves, but also it served as a lodging house for the workers. And in the time of Jesus, it was quite common to have an absentee landlord who let their estates out to tenants. And of course, they naturally expected some of the profits at harvest time. It's really no different to people today owning property which they rent out and expect their rent money at the end of each month. It's no different. So I'm going to ask you a few questions first to see what you would think about this parable So there's six questions. First of all, who is Jesus saying is the landowner? Did I hear? Yes, well done, Liz. Any idea what the vineyard represents or who the vineyard represents? No? No? Not specifically in this, but it was a good try. It actually represents the people of Israel. Isaiah 5 verse 7 says, The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel, and the men of Israel the garden of his delight. Okay, this is perhaps a bit easier. Who are the tenant farmers? The Jews, but particularly the religious authorities, the religious leaders that Jesus is having a dig at. Who are the servants in the parable? The servants that uh, the the landowner kept sending out. Pardon? The prophets. Yes, well done, Adele. The prophets. (laughs) Now, this is an easy one. Who is the son? Well done. Thank you. 
slightly harder, the last question, who are the other tenants that the landowner is going to give the property to? Yes, who said Gentiles? Well, well done over there. Good. (laughs) You've been well taught. So let's ask ourselves what this parable is, first of all, telling us about God. Can you... um, Oh, you've done that. Well done. Well done, Erica. Erica is doing this for the first time on her own, so she's doing a brilliant job. Thank you. So what does this parable tell us about God? First of all, it tells us that God entrusted his vineyard to those tenants. He didn't stand over them exercising a police-like authority. He let them get on with it. And that tells me and you that God gives us tasks and responsibilities And he trusts us to get on with them as well. Secondly, this parable tells us about God's patience. The tenants, well, they're not only wicked, but they're incredibly stupid to think that the vineyard would be theirs if they killed the heir, because it wouldn't. It would never be theirs. And yet the owner sent messenger after messenger and gave them chance after chance to respond to his desire to have his well-deserved fruit of the vineyard. But they would not give God what was rightfully his. Peter says that God is infinitely patient with us. He says he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Thirdly, this parable tells us of God's judgment. In the end, the owner of the vineyard took the land back from the tenants and gave it to others. In fact, the picture here is of Israel. It now becomes a picture of the Gentiles, all those believing Christians who are living under God's blessing and have a personal relationship with him. So what does the parable tell us about Jesus? Well, first of all, it tells us two things. One, about the claims of Jesus. Jesus is saying very clearly in this story that he has made up that the messengers of God who preceded him, the prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Moses and so many others, they are but servants of God. But he, Jesus, is the Son And in this parable, he's making really clear his claims to be the son of God. Well, you can imagine that was really getting on the nerves of the Jewish authorities and the priests. And of course, it also tells us very clearly about the sacrifice of Jesus. He knew what lay ahead. He knew the son was going to be thrown out of the vineyard in reality, not just in a parable. And yet, Jesus carries on teaching and preaching in Jerusalem in full view of all these priests and high-up authorities. He knew what he was facing, but he carried on. So what does it tell us about ourselves? Well, first of all, it tells us that it's a great privilege to be involved in God's vineyard. It was so well-equipped with everything that the tenants needed, the hedge, the wine press, the tower. And likewise, God has equipped us with everything we need to serve him, especially the Bible, as Paul writes to Timothy, the word of God which equips us for every good work. We can't do anything here at Pip and Jim's in our love for the Lord unless it's 
got that foundational word of the God of the Lord behind us. And of course, we have the Holy Spirit's power within, giving us that strength and purpose to fulfill the tasks that God has given us. And then we saw too the freedom that the owner gave to the tenants. God is not a tyrannical taskmaster, but he's more like a wise commander who allocates a task and then he trusts men and women to get on with it and do it well. So at this point, we have to ask ourselves, what task has God given me to do in the church? What task has he given you? And are we doing it to the best of our ability? But we also see in this parable the fact of accountability. There will come a day of reckoning for everybody. And we will all be answerable as, first of all, whether we have accepted Christ into our life, but also for the way that we have carried out the tasks that he has given to us and the various jobs that he's entrusted into our care. And surely to help keep us on track, we have those words of encouragement. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. We do want God to say that to us at the end of our life, don't we? And that's why it's really important to encourage each other especially if we see others are flagging in their energy levels or their zeal for the Lord. We need to encourage each other in our various tasks here at Pip and Jim's. And then we see that the parab, these tenants, they deliberately sinned. It wasn't just by omission, a sin of omission, or just as an accident. They deliberately sinned. They carried out a policy of rebellion and disobedience towards the owner. And what the tenants do to the son exposes what they really want, which is complete independence from the landowner. And that's what sin really is, deliberately turning our back on God and wanting to be independent of him. Now, all the priests and Jewish high officials standing round, they knew jolly well that Jesus was telling this story against them. But they didn't respond to the story. They still continued to plot against Jesus the Son and wanting him to be killed. Now, the tenants in this made-up story may well have felt strongly about the seeming inequality of, well, we're just tenants, he's the landlord, it's not fair. He's got so much and we've got so little. It's not fair, was probably their complaint. And it's not fair is something we probably all hear other people say and probably say it ourselves sometimes. And there is a lot of unfairness around. You've only got to visit the net or watch the news on television to know how unfair life is for so many people. So how do we cope with such inequality? Certainly not, the, not as the tenants did, by terrorizing servants and killing the son. But we can be thankful for what we have. We can be aware of what others do not have. We can give, we can serve, we can love, we can pray. And now we're going to introduce the stone. Now, it does seem a bit as if Jesus is going off track by introducing a totally new picture He's actually quoting from Psalm 118, verse 22, which all his hearers that day 
would know because it was sung in procession at feast days and high festivals. So they knew it well. They knew it well. Psalm 118 verse 22 says exactly as it does in Matthew. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. But for the listeners, it was actually easy to go from the word stone to the word sun. Because in Hebrew, the word sun is ben, B-E-N. And the word stone is eben, E-B-E-N. So from stone to sun was quite a normal thing for them to to think about and have that playing in their minds. And in fact, an Aramaic commentary on Psalm 118, verse 22, instead of saying, the stone the builders rejected, actually writes, the sun which the builders rejected. How prophetic is that? What a wonderful play on words. So prophetic. There are actually two pictures relating to stones here. The first is a picture of a cornerstone or a capstone. The dictionary says it's a large stone, as you can see up there, near the base of a building where two walls meet, often giving information about the building and sometimes, in fact, usually put in position with a great ceremony. So builders wouldn't just choose any old stone for that cornerstone or that capstone. They would choose the best, the cleanest, the brightest, the smartest. And originally, the writer of Psalm 118 meant this as a picture of Israel, which was despised and rejected by all the other nations around. And yet, the very nation that was despised and rejected by others was the very nation that God chose to be his people. So Jesus is using this picture from Psalm 118 to point to himself, who, in a few short hours would be despised and rejected and killed. As Isaiah 53 says, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Men, yes, would try to eliminate him, but in dying and rising to new life, he will become the chief cornerstone of his new building, the church, you and me. Peter echoes this in his letter, in his first letter. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. And a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message. But, continues Peter, you are a chosen people, like Israel was chosen, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. So this first picture is of Jesus, the stone, the cornerstone, the capstone, the foundation of every church and every believer. But there's a second picture in this uh, parable, And Jesus may have had in mind the book of Daniel when he told this parable, where a huge rock cut out without hands, in fact they were cut by God, broke to pieces, came hurtling down, broke to pieces 
the enemies of God. And perhaps this is a picture of an asteroid hurtling towards Earth. And there is absolutely nothing anyone can do to stop it or deviate its course. And you've probably seen many films about such an event like Deep Impact or Armageddon or Meteor. So here Jesus is talking about a stone, which if a person stumbles against it, will bring them up short and make them think about um, eternity and make them think about the claims of Jesus. But if they fail to be brought up short by the stone that causes men to stumble, then eventually that stone will fall on them and crush them. Now, both these pictures are summed up in Jesus. He is, first of all, the foundation stone on which we build our Christian life together. But if we refuse to go his way and want to be independent of God, then it will be like battering our heads against a brick wall. And on the day of judgment, if we defy him and go our own way, it will be like having the life crushed out of us. This is a jolly difficult picture to cope with, but his hearers that morning would have been familiar with these concepts and these pictures that Jesus brought out in this story. Now this morning, some of us perhaps may feel broken in some way, already broken. Perhaps we've come up against Jesus and he's hurt. we feel hurt because he wants Perhaps he demands or asks things of us that we're not happy to give. Perhaps hopes and dreams have crushed things out of, out of you because that's what happens in life. It's not smooth. Perhaps you may be feeling like your whole world is caving in on you. I like looking up synonyms on my computer and I expected the synonym for crushed to all be relating to being under this boulder that's crashing down. But actually, they spoke in terms of being um, wrinkled or creased or crumpled or rumpled. But however you like to think about it, whether you feel crushed or broken or wrinkled and rumpled, life isn't always smooth. And there are often bricks and rocks in the way. It's interesting that that Isaiah passage I mentioned earlier goes on to say, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And by his wounds we are healed. Jesus knows what it's like to have the life crushed out of us because he's experienced it. That was the prophetic word in Isaiah which Jesus fulfilled on the cross. And we can today bring our feelings of brokenness and crushedness to Jesus for his healing and restoring touch. Remember the very words that Jesus first of all stood up in the synagogue and preached came from Isaiah 61 when he says and affirmed, God binds up the wounds of the broken hearted. And we've already sung about that this morning. Revelations 2 tells us that God will also give to those who overcome a white stone with a new name written on it. Yesterday at our Ladies Away Day, at our Glow Day, at the end, we all had the opportunity of washing our hands to get rid of anything that was causing a problem with us, giving it to the cro- Jesus on the cross. 
and then going to another table and picking up a white stone. And that white stone, as Jill yesterday told us, symbolizes our admission into eternity. So Jesus is either the capstone on which we build our lives, or he's the stone that we might stumble against. And it's not a sin to stumble against the stone of Jesus, because he stops us up short in order to speak to us and show us his love. But it is a sin to deliberately choose to go our own way. This is a really solemn parable, isn't it? Well, finally, let's remember that the purpose of a vineyard was to grow beautiful, rich, luscious grapes to be made into wine. In other words, it was to grow fruit. And in this passage, the word fruit is actually mentioned four times. So there is a really clear challenge here to honor God with our first fruits, giving the best we have to him. And this parable reminds us that at the end of the day, our task is to produce fruit. And the words of, Jesus, of, of God right at the very beginning to Adam were, be fruitful and multiply. He told, God told him to do this and encouraged him and his descendants to cultivate the rest of the world on God's behalf. But those words, be fruitful and multiply, apply to us today. Because just as God expected the fruit from his tenants, so he's looking for bountiful fruit from us. And John, of course, says, if we abide in him, we will produce much fruit. That's what will make us fruitful, by abiding in Jesus Christ. Fruit, fruit that will reflect the love of God and give glory to his name. Fruit that will cause others to seek after him. Fruit that can be seen to represent all kinds of right responses to God, like praise and thanksgiving and obedience and worship, compassion, care for others and so on. Fruit that gives him his due, that follows perhaps the tithing principle of putting our money aside first for God, and all the fruit of the Spirit that are listed in Galatians 5. These tenants, they wanted to be independent from the landowner, but they ended up with nothing. However, when we are joined to God, and when we find our place in the vineyard, And when we remain in Jesus, then the result will be fruitful and blessed lives. So let's really encourage each other to be fruitful in our Christian tasks, to say well done to each other, to bless each other in the the giftings that we have. And let's honour God with the best that we have of our time, our gifts, our homes and our money. I started by asking six questions. I'm going to ask and finish with two more, but I don't want you to answer out loud. This is for you, in your mind, in your heart, to respond to God. So are we, first of all, in the position of wanting to be independent of God? Or are we wanting to be joined and united with God the Father so that we can build our life on Christ the capstone and be fruitful and blessed in his service. 
Verse 42 said, this is marvellous in our eyes. And won't it be marvellous when people can say, echoing the words of verse 42, and the words of the priest in the joke at the beginning, good Lord, he's done it again. Amen.